Great, good evening. Please do open up your Bibles at page 1174 in Ephesians chapter 2. As Jonathan said, um, we're focusing on verses 19 to 22 this evening, but we're going to be drawing back on some of the uh, verses that were looked at last week, as that is where so much um, of the reasoning is. So page 1174, uh, Ephesians 2. On Friday uh, last week, there was a really remarkable speech that was delivered um, to the United Nations Youth Assembly by Malala Yousafzai. Anyone else see that? See it on the news? Well, Malala is a Pakistani girl who was uh, shot in the head uh, by the Taliban uh, for advocating the rights of girls to education. And she was delivering her first speech after recovering uh, from being shot, and I was listening to part of it, extracts on my journey home um, from work, and it was a great speech. Malala spoke really eloquently uh, and movingly about the campaign being waged by so many. Uh, for peace, education, equality, uh, dignity, and her role as a campaigner uh, in that. And she ended the speech uh, with these words, One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Well, Malala's speech moved many of the youth assembly to tears. Her words had struck a chord, and it's not difficult to see why, is it? We live in a world that is divided and fractured. We only, we only need to look at the newspapers uh, to see the fault lines that run through uh, humanity. Selfishness, prejudice, uh, intolerance. Yet we long, at least part of us, longs to live in a world uh, where there is peace, there is unity, love. And here was a 19-year-old girl with an extraordinary personal story fighting for just such a transformation with such uh, conviction. It was great. Yet as I drove home with some of Malala's words going around my head, and a few from Ephesians 2 as well, I couldn't help but question how successful Malala's campaign will be. Will her campaign, brilliant though it is, really change the world? Will it really bring peace, unity and love? You know, there have been many great campaigners, haven't there, in human history? Think of some of the names, William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Emmeline Pankhurst, Mahatma Gandhi, Bob Geldof even, uh, to name but a few. And they've all achieved good and wonderful things, yet fundamentally all have failed. They've failed. You look at humanity and it remains scarred with many forms of slavery, oppression, discrimination and poverty. They're still there. And if human history shows us anything, surely it is our inability to put together the fractured pieces of our humanity. We can't put them back together. Why? Because the human heart is riddled with selfishness, prejudice and intolerance. I guess we only have to look into the depths of our own hearts to know that is true. Well, tonight's passage is all about the restoration of our fractured humanity. And it tells us that moral renewal, the moral renewal of our society, our our humanity, does not lie within the orbit of human competence. We can't rescue ourselves. We are dead in our transgression and sins, as the Apostle says, verse 1 of chapter 2. We're powerless to do so. But rescue has broken in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this passage speaks of the wonder of the creation of a new humanity, one new humanity through Jesus Christ. A humanity, yes, 
that is marked by peace, by unity, by love. So what the Apostle describes in chapter 6 is the mystery of the Gospel. And the key verse of tonight's passage is verse 15. One of the verses we looked at last week. Do you see that? Verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself, that's Christ, one new man out of the two, a new humanity, thus making peace. You know, everything in tonight's passage flows from verse 15. This is the key idea at the heart of this letter. It is the grand plan and purpose of God through history. And it is the thing that shows above everything else the majesty, the power, the grace and the mercy of God. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, God has created one new humanity, a new human race. Out of the thousands of different tribes, races and nations on earth. This new race has been created out of the, the, fract, the fractions of our fractured world. And in Jesus Christ, every, everyone is united with each other if they, and God if they belong to Christ. As Jonathan said, verse 19 starts with the word consequently. And the four verses we're looking at this evening tell us of the consequences of coming into a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They're the consequences of the gospel of Christ. And they speak of what it means to participate in God's new humanity. They challenge us to open our minds and our hearts to the call of putting aside everything that divides us and separates us. And they call us to live out our new humanity together. Well, there are three gospel consequences. And the first gospel consequence is this. We belong to God's household. We belong to God's household. Look at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. We saw last week, didn't we, in verse, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, the, the picture that the Apostle paints of the fractured uh, humanity. And here in verse 19, the Apostle is reminding the Gentile converts of the great divisions that once existed and saying they don't exist any longer. The disqualifications, they've gone. And it's worth reminding ourselves just of, of what those disqualifications were, of, of the historic barrier that existed between Jew and Gentile, there was cultural, social, human division between Jews and Gentiles. You know, Jews practiced a form of kind of voluntary apartheid that would make modern-day racism seem like child's play. Gentiles were regarded as nothing more than fuel for hell's fire. You couldn't help a Jewish a Gentile woman give birth because you're just making another log for the fire of hell. If a Jew married a Gentile, there was no wedding celebration, you had a funeral instead. Jews and Gentiles were even forbidden to shake hands. There were divisions and and fractures woven deep into society. And nowhere was it clearer than than in the temple, the place that was the heart of Jewish life. There was a physical five-foot-high wall around the temple that excluded the Gentiles from going in. And if they crossed the wall, they were executed. And then as well as uh, the the cultural, the social, the human division, there was spiritual division. The physical temple wall pointed to it, represented a a much deeper spiritual barrier. What was it? Just remind ourselves, it's there in verse 12. The Gentiles were excluded from the people of God. They didn't have the passport. 
They were outsiders to all the benefits of God's loving rule amongst his people. All the covenant promises that God had made through people like Abraham, Moses and David, they didn't apply to them. They were not members of God's family, so they weren't going to get an inheritance. And they were without, without God in the world. They didn't know God. Their natural condition was they were cut off from God. God was a stranger with whom they had no relationship. They were spiritual refugees. They were without hope, finally. They had no future. Their plight was hopeless. Life was painful. Death would be more painful. They were heading for a godless eternity. And the state of the Gentiles before Christ, before Christ came is at heart the state that all people are in before they come to Christ. It is a description of every person in a nutshell who has not put their trust in Jesus Christ. So once the Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, godless, in short, verse 19, they were foreigners and aliens, but no longer, says Paul, verse 19, thanks to the gospel work of Jesus Christ, they are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. There's a great intimacy there, isn't there? Being a member of a household, it's a, a real family uh, picture. The Gentiles now have identity, security, protection, the knowledge they belong to God. That is the ultimate antidote to prejudice and conflict. Of great sporting controversy, wasn't there, a couple of weeks ago, before the final British and Irish Lions test against Australia. Brian O'Driscoll, a legendary Irish and Lions player, was left out of the team. It wasn't even on the substitutes bench. Was it right? Was it wrong? It was probably right, because we hammered Australia. Thank goodness. But when it comes to God's household, there is no substitutes bench. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. There's no hierarchy of seniority. There's no kind of core to God's people and then those people on the periphery. What's God's purpose in Jesus? It's to have one people, one church, one family, not many. The Jews and Gentiles are now in relationship with one another. There is no dividing wall. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is saying, you really are in. You belong. Get it. You belong. God has brought down the barrier to citizenship in the kingdom. So what's the implication for us? Surely it's that all barriers, all barriers, are gone. There is no dividing lines amongst those who belong to God through Jesus Christ. We belong to the one household whatever our sex, our age, marital status, job, whatever it might be. These are no distinctions of importance. We're one in Christ. It's an awesome privilege. We belong. We belong. Sometimes we can look at another Christian and think, they just seem that bit more plugged in than me. Bit closer to the core. That is nonsense. Never think of yourself as an outsider or inferior to another Christian. If you're in Christ, you belong. But I guess with belonging comes great responsibility. 
It's not that we have to kind of earn our membership, but surely we've got to behave in a way that is fitting for a member of God's royal household. That's what it is, a royal household. So we need to ask God to help us to to fulfil the responsibility of belonging to God's people. So can I ask you, how is your behaviour? How are you relating to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it worthy of membership of God's royal household? Those of us who are in Christ are called to put aside everything that divides and separates. Yet so often we focus on the things that divide us. So we think, don't we, I just don't get on with that person. They really irritate me. So I'm going to avoid them uh, at the coffee hatch. I'll steer clear of them. I'm not going to speak to them. Or we think, I can't stand the way that person does the music uh, on a Sunday, so I'm not going to turn up and work with that person on the week they're doing it. Or we enter into destructive talk and gossip. We kind of build coalitions amongst ourselves for the things that we want or the things we think should be going on. Or we kind of flit between churches. We don't settle, we don't serve, we don't commit. We don't want to join a home group. That's just too much of a commitment of our valuable time. Or if we're in one, well, it's a, you know, it's a final of the apprentice. I'm going to stay at home this week. Or something like that. Or we just see church as this kind of buffet-style canteen. We kind of help ourselves to what we like the look of. If we're not getting anything we don't like, fine, we'll stay away. You know, I was reflecting that I've been involved with this church for almost seven years. And there are still many people in this church I've never spoken with, let alone had a meaningful conversation with. I thought that is shocking after seven years. You know, one day we'll be in heaven with many people in this room. Wouldn't it be a bit embarrassing if we get there and we don't even know some of the names of the people that have been in the same church fellowship as us? How we relate as members of the family is important. Our behaviour towards our brothers and sisters in Christ says everything about our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is your behaviour worthy of your belonging to God's royal household. So God has one household. I think second, God's household has one foundation. Good verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. What is the foundation of God's household. It is a New Testament prophets and apostles, those who received and passed on the gospel revelation for our purposes, the New Testament. And at the base of the foundation is the one that the New Testament speaks of and points to, Jesus Christ. Sounds straightforward, but it's vital we get this because the sense of belonging spoken about in verse 19, that's founded only on Christ. And the growth that Paul goes on to speak of in verses 21 and 22 That's rooted only in Christ. Christ is the linchpin. He is it. It is only through Christ that the Gentiles can be fellow citizens and members of God's household. Probably remember the reasoning for that uh, back in verse verse 14. Just have a look at it uh, for a moment. For he himself, that's Jesus, verse 14, 
is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. The ceremonial law, with all of its rules and regulations, it no longer comes between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because Jesus has abolished the condemnation of the law. The kind of the bouncer who once stood at the door saying, you're not dressed properly, you can't come in. He's gone. As verse 13 makes clear, people are now reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. The law had put Jew and Gentile at odds, but the way to God is no longer through the law. Instead, it is through the death of Jesus on the cross. So there is one new man, verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And this one man, this one body, is now reconciled with God himself. And this too is only possible because of the death of Jesus and the teaching of the death of Jesus. That's what verses 16 and 17 are talking about. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So the alienation between us and God is finished. We are reconciled to God uh, through the cross and through the preaching of the cross. So whatever our background here today, if we belong to Christ, you belong to God and you belong to the people of God. If we're in Christ, we have a duty and a responsibility to speak out for this truth, to contend for this truth in our everyday lives, the places God puts us, and to do it in love, just as the apostles did. Maybe you're here this evening, you're looking in, uh, and you're not, not yet a Christian, you don't belong uh, to Christ. You're very welcome, but can I say to you, don't be deceived by appearances. On the surface, everything may seem great. Life may, may seem good. But if you've not trusted in Christ, you are without God and without hope. And you're excluded from all of the benefits of a relationship with God. The God who made you and loves you more than you can ever comprehend. It's a desperate place to be. Christ died for you. On the cross he took the punishment for you. The barrier is down. The walls can come down tonight. What is your response to Christ? So God has one household. God's household has one foundation. And I think finally, God's spirit dwells in God's household. God's spirit dwells in God's household. Just look at verses 21 and 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What is the great covenant promise of God? Surely it's this, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. And surely nowhere is that more vividly portrayed uh, than in these final two verses. This is a picture of God's family as a kind of full-blown Olympic Park-style building site. 
That's what's going on here. So in verse 14, we've seen the wall was being pulled down. Now in verse 21, we've got a building going up. And it's not just going up, it's being joined together, riveted together. What was pulled down was a dividing wall. What's going up is a united building. And in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We've heard a lot about togetherness tonight. And this is what this is about, surely. This is togetherness growth, isn't it? It's all about togetherness, being joined uh, together. And, and this theme is one of the themes that develops uh, as this letter goes on. Just look ahead at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. 15 and 16 of chapter 4. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. Every part of the building relates to another part. Every part of the building is vital. You know, the word, apparently, for temple that is used here is a word that relates to the the kind of inner shrine bit of the Jewish temple, the special meeting place between God and his people, the place of God's presence. Do you see how powerful that language is here? This is kind of a whole-scale relocation of the temple. When I was preparing this talk, I read um, one of these stories, but it's a great answer for all parents of teenage children, which one day maybe I'll use. I'm not quite there yet. But the teenager says on a Sunday morning, why do I have to come to church? And the parent answers, you don't. You are the church. It's kind of stupid, really, isn't it? But it illustrates that the real meeting place for God is not focused on a building. Instead, it is focused on his people. God no longer lives in a building. Instead, he lives in his people, those who are in Christ. That is remarkable. It's remarkable, isn't it? Think about it. Remarkable truth for Christian people. You and me, we're made to be the place where God lives by his spirit. If that isn't full membership of God's people, I don't know what is. Do you see how far the Gentile Christians have come? Back in verse 12, they were barred from the temple. Now they're one of the bricks in the temple wall. What an amazing transformation. The gospel purpose is to build us together to become like this. It's a corporate gospel, a togetherness gospel. I don't know about you, but so often we seem to have an individualistic mindset, don't we? So we kind of have a tendency to ask, what is God's plan for my life? What has God got for me? What is God saying to me? Our spiritual focus in that, to some extent at least, is ourselves, isn't it? One writer called it sanctified selfishness. So we're kind of absorbed with ourselves and our own lives. Sure, we kind of Christianise the language a bit, sounds a bit better. There's some good motive there. But at heart, we're still a little bit obsessed with me. Yet fundamentally, God's plan is not for me and for my life. Instead, his plan is for his church, the body of Christ of which we are members. 
So the question surely should be, not how does church fit into my life, but how do I fit in with God's purposes for his church? There's a big difference there, isn't there, in the emphasis of the question. So what is the application for all of this corporate togetherness gospel? Well, all we have to do is read the rest of the letter, which we're not going to do now. Uh, But these themes flow out and shape the rest of the letter. And I just want to pick out very briefly three, as we finish, three applications, if you like, that Paul makes. First, the corporate gospel, it shapes Paul's prayers. Just look at verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason I kneel before the Father. What does he pray? Verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the gospel purpose that we see at the end of chapter 2, that we would be a dwelling place in which God lives, that is precisely what Paul prays will happen. Praying is often difficult, isn't it? We ask, what should we pray? How should we pray? Well, if we want to pray for others in a way that is in line with God's purposes, this is a good way to start. Second, the corporate gospel, it defines our Christian calling. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is the calling they have received? To be joined together as God's people. And so there follows one of the great New Testament calls for Christian unity. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Say no more. But third and finally, the corporate gospel, it demands our holiness. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Demands our holiness. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Gentiles belong now. They are being built into a holy temple, so they can't go on living and acting as if they're those who are ignorant of God. And do you notice how it says togetherness thing again, even there? We shouldn't just be concerned about whether we are right, whether we're doing okay. We've also got to be concerned about whether one another are right. How, how are we doing each other? We've got a responsibility to challenge one another, to encourage one another. Just look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we're all members of one body. We can't have division again. Or look at verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Sometimes we can be tempted to think, does church life really matter? At times our church life is difficult, it's messy, It's stressful, it's frustrating, it's time-consuming, it's annoying sometimes. And we can be tempted to think, why the heck should we bother? It just feels like 
a step too far. We're in Christ, we're trusting in him, that surely is enough. Well, this passage says everything, doesn't it? About why our church life, our maturity and our unity matters so much. Because together we are a temple, a temple in which God dwells. It is an awesome privilege and a great responsibility. Surely we're going to take that seriously. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for the, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, that you've not left us alone in the mess of our fractured, uh, divided uh, world. But Lord, that you stepped into that mess uh, and you died for us. You took our wrongdoing on yourself that we can stand before you holy and clean. And we can be joined with you uh, and with fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we ask that we would... Uh, know that deeply in our hearts, that we'd be encouraged uh, by that. That we'd recognise what an awesome privilege it is to be one of your children, to be a member of your kingdom. And we pray that you'd help us to uh, live that out, to be responsible in that, in the way that we should be. Lord, that it would shape our prayer life, that it would uh, shape our conduct that we would strive and desire to be holy to please you. And Lord God, that we would be concerned for each other. We would have genuine, practical, challenging, encouraging love for one another in Christ. Please, as a body of people together, would you take us where we're at and move us on, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.